under your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to be. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Clark. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The tyrant in you is the tyrant in me. And the trick is where we find liberty. You know, coming off the finale of Game of Thrones, and I'll try not to spoil it so early in the game, not everybody had the time to watch the grand finale of the entire series last night. I was satisfied. I didn't. I don't expect too much from my stories because they're not the stories I'm telling. Now, if I was the person writing these stories and saw all this criticism, I might think again about my choices and decisions. But at the end of the day, I was very much happy with how Game of Thrones ended. In particular, I was happy because I felt like I was vindicated. I was right, and I'm. Again, trying not to give too much away. But it's an opportunity for us, whether you're watching Game of Thrones or you're watching what is now a conversation people in Washington, D.C. and all around the intelligentsia writing in papers and online publications across the country are discussing is Trump, President Trump's foreign policy. Now, in general, I think President Trump is not going far enough with his instincts. And this is something I've thought about a long time now. That he's not going with his instincts. He campaigned on, essentially, what a waste of blood and treasure. All these wars in the Middle East, whether it's Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya or Syria. So many other examples. This is what President Trump ran on as candidate Trump. But he wasn't the first candidate for president that ran on peace. But then once he sat in the presidential chair, ended up, well, softening a little bit. Giving into yes, what I will call an empire. You know, I was listening, if you haven't checked it out, you should. I was listening again to uh, Dan Carlin. He is the creator of Hardcore History long-winded, but in a good way, podcast on different points in history. I was listening once again because there's so much in there. You can find fruit every time you listen while going about my chores to his podcast on the Persian Empire of old, the ancient Persian Empire, and all their different methods from Cyrus the Great to Darius to Darius to Xerxes that you might remember if you know the movie 300, the Battle of Thermopylae against the 300 Spartans at the Hot Gates. Fascinating stuff. But I was listening to Dan Carlin talk about modern-day politics and what he would want. He feels like a man out of time. 
he was traditionally a Democrat, but now he's sort of in the mushy middle. And for different reasons in a different way, though I tend to come from more of the right side of the political spectrum, if we can even use that language, I find myself a lot of the times in the mushy middle. But it's not that I'm just at a cafeteria or a huge buffet picking and choosing from each side as I please without principle. It's more that I've become fascinated with the cognitive dissonance, with the doublethink in some cases, with the fact that certain nations, broadly speaking, can be one thing and yet not even realize it about themselves, not even call themselves that. Or certain people can think they are one thing, say a liberator, when they're actually a tyrant. Of all tyrannies, let's just focus on people who are blind to themselves. Of all tyrannies, wrote C.S. Lewis, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. Those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. I'll probably be throwing a lot of quotes out tonight, folks, because I'm by myself. Troy is not feeling too well. Southernwood had a job to do, so you have Joey solo. But it reminds me, C.S. Lewis's quote, of another one that I'll probably butcher just off the top of my head, but Aldous Huxley wrote A Brave New World. He talked about how ideals are the ideals, really. Your high ideals, your great goals and visions are simply, ideals are simply the noble toga gentlemen drape over their will to power. It is really this idea that we see ourselves as liberators, as good people, but we never really question our means and methods to achieve our noble goals, our ideals, our hopes and dreams. It's an important reminder that justice at any cost is not justice at all. It needs to be tempered. By other considerations. But say not just on the personal level, then national level. You might want to argue with me that the United States is an empire. I'm not just saying it's an empire. I agree with folks like Dan Carlin. It's the most powerful empire ever before in human history. By far. Bar none. The most powerful empire the world has ever seen in human history. That is the United States. For instance, Julius Caesar called himself Imperator, but he never called himself a king. His adopted heir, Augustus, preferred Principus as his title. Emperors can call themselves what they like, and so can empires. For instance, the Kingdom of England has proclaimed or was proclaimed an empire by Henry VIII before it ever became anything close to an empire. The United States, by contrast, to this day, though I'm hearing more voices admit it, has long been an empire, but eschews that label. We don't like it. It reminds us too much of Darth Vader and Star Wars and the people we've defeated in history, say, like the Nazis. You know, those guys, the, the Nazis, right? It was a Nazi! It was a Nazi man! But in a way... Because Thomas Jefferson was recently in the news, given that Pete Buttigieg said Thomas Jefferson referred to what he hoped the United States would be an empire for liberty. 
George Washington considered himself a citizen of an infant empire. So this idea of the United States being a great liberator, a great force for good and human freedom in the world, you don't have to argue with me much in order to accept that and to accept America's ideals and hopes and dreams and vision. But we have to be careful about our means and methods. For instance, imagine you toppled a dictator. Say, let's take the guy who campaigned against wars of choice, Barack Obama. That's exactly what he campaigned against. As a candidate, he railed against George W. Bush's wars of choice. He promised peace in Baghdad. He promised peace in Kabul. He promised peace all over the world. He was given the peace prize just for his rhetoric before he even became president. But as president, Barack Obama's peace prize and campaign promises of peace gave way to more wars of choice. Though Obama ended the war in Afghanistan, leaving thousands of troops there in the process, he escalated the Afghan war first. I believe more people died under Barack Obama's watch in Afghanistan than under George W. Bush. He pulled out of Iraq, Barack Obama did, only to topple Gaddafi in Libya and to encourage the larger Arab Spring. And in that push to encourage the larger Arab Spring, he tried to topple Assad covertly, only to jump back into Iraq once again to take on ISIS. ISIS is no doubt an enemy of the United States, but also a group that wanted to take out Assad in Syria. It all became very confusing, and we kept funneling arms and support to different groups, essentially fighting both sides of the same war and flaming the conflict further. And I'm not even touching tonight on the expanded use of drones, which President Donald Trump has also expanded. But the point is this. A lot of presidents are running on peace, whether it was George W. Bush with his humble foreign policy that 9-11 happened. We had this grand idea, you're either with us or against us in fighting terror. Well, we're still fighting that fight. Whether it's Barack Obama against wars of choice, making new wars of choice. Or Donald Trump railing against Bush and Obama's wars, including Afghanistan. As an utter waste of American blood and treasure. Blood and treasure, manpower, and wealth that should have gone to America first. But Donald Trump was convinced by his generals to stay in Afghanistan. The quote at the time was, My original instinct was to pull out, and historically I like to follow my instincts. But all my life I've heard the decisions are much different when you sit behind the desk in the Oval Office. In other words, when you're President of the United States. Yeah, I think we understood what you meant by sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office, Donald. And here's the thing, folks. It's easy to write off Trump or Obama or Bush, if you so please, as lying and hypocritical warmongers. But it's also easy to apologize them. And this is where I find myself in the mushy middle as fallible men made a lot of promises on the campaign trail, but when you're behind that desk, these fallible men react to complex events the best they can. So you can either damn them or praise them. And both approaches, damning or praising, will and have been adopted, will continue to be adopted, 
in the name of either defending peaceful ideals or advancing cynical imperial ploys. But the question I ask myself when I start thinking about these big things, these big ideas, and again, the end of Game of Thrones brought it up to me, and also all this chatter going on about Iran, but largely the president's foreign policy, whether it has to do with North Korea or China or Venezuela. There's a lot of chatter going on, but Iran is the hot one right now. But it's time we ask why recent presidents have pursued war or means and methods just short of war, despite their professed humility in the case of George W. Bush, aspirational foreign policy in the case of Barack Obama, or their instincts and realistic view of the world, as in the case of Donald Trump. What is it about sitting in the presidential chair that changes a man? And I'm sure it would change a woman. This isn't about one's sex. Why does the presidency mute men's better angels, it seems, only to amplify their inner demons? I mean, if we're going to be honest, it's that we should first stop dressing up the same old song and dance foreign policy with new rhetoric and ideas. Stop dressing up this idea that America is always on the side of the good and we're just fighting the evil du jour, the evil of the day. Like it's soup or something. We need to stop buying into these euphemisms that American leadership or American strength or even a more technical word like American hegemony or sole superpower. These are all ways of saying what I mentioned earlier. America is an empire and not just any empire, the most powerful empire ever known to humankind. We were mostly a commercial empire with vast naval capabilities, vast air capabilities, and new technologies that I don't even think have really been tested in the way technology was tested in the world wars. But if you read your ancient Greeks, and I have to admit I've not sat down with Thucydides, the history of the Peloponnesian War, and read it you know, chapter and verse from cover to cover, but I have read selections from it presented by great historians and brilliant authors. And there's this one line where Thucydides is covering the Peloponnesian War. That is the war, the ancient one between an established Sparta and a rising now imperial Athens. And it's important to remember this quote Pericles said to the people of Athens. And it explains why so many people run as peace candidates only to sort of give in to the swamp give in to the deep state, give in to the long obligations of the empire. And this is what Pericles had to say to the people of Athens. And it's good to remember, we're not always on the side of the angels. Sometimes we're just in a tough spot. Quote, And do not imagine that what we are fighting for is simply the question of freedom or slavery. There is also involved the loss of our empire and the dangers arising from the hatred which we have incurred administering it. Your empire is now like a tyranny. It may have been wrong to take it. It's certainly dangerous to let it go. So in many ways, I'm in agreement with Dan Carlin on this big question. I think the question of our time that will befuddle many presidents 
to come and have befuddle the presidents in the 21st century, whether it's W or Obama or now President Trump. It's time to pick our poison. And my hope is that we find what uh, I've heard people like Dan Carlin say is a soft landing. A soft landing. Is President Trump the right man to do this? I'm not certain. Is anybody running for the Democrats right now the right person to do this? I'm not certain. I prefer we come back home. We stick by the Republican little r ideas that founded the nation. The liberal, classically understood ideas that founded this nation. But it all gets back to us understanding that means and methods... No matter how important and noble or visionary our imagined ends, the ends do not justify the means. So whether it was Obama in Libya or amping it up in Afghanistan or Trump staying in Afghanistan or W taking out Saddam in Iraq, you will hear anti-war activists say, what about the innocents who died? you could say back to them it was necessary we can't fight a politically correct war our enemies will try to use these innocents and our innocence and our goodwill against us we can't let what's that euphemism that so often used collateral damage cripple us We can't hide behind small mercies for the little person. We have big, noble goals to achieve. The world we need won't be built by people still holding strong to the old ways. It's not easy to see something that's never been before a good world. You might ask this person, defending their means and methods of war, how do you know after the war is said and done that it will be a good world, that things will work out the way you thought? They could say, because I have the will and the strength and I know what's good. And you could ask them back, what about everybody else? What about all the other people who think they know what's good? And that's where the rubber meets the road. You might hear somebody say, well, they don't get a choice. In many ways, the United States is in the seat of power. The United States might as well be sitting on, to keep the Game of Thrones theme going, the Iron Throne. But whoever fights monsters should see that in the process you do not become one. If you gaze long enough into the abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. As I said at the beginning of the show, the tyrant in you is the tyrant in me. Or if I could quote another great mind, somebody like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the author of Gulag Archipelago, laying out all the horrors of Soviet Russia and their concentration camp system. He reminds us that the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every person. And a just cause, a noble vision, high ideals. Well, a just cause is the most seductive nourishment, the baser parts of our souls, of the abyss, the tyranny, the tyrant within us. We have to be careful. It's a delicate balance. It's very easy to say, I have 
what's good and right in my mind and my heart, and I'm willing to see it through. Whether it's damning presidents or praising them, whether it's going to war or holding back for the time being. And that brings us to the news that sort of bubbled to the surface in the last few days. And no, I'm not talking about electoral politics. That'll get hotter and hotter as we get closer and closer to, well, the summer months here as the Democrats start debating and picking at one another. Joe Biden, by the way, is still leading the pack with Bernie Sanders following. I'm not here to talk about the investigation of the investigators. I'm sure we'll see the Inspector General Michael Horowitz report before too long. What Mr. Durham out of Connecticut will be doing looking into this stuff. What Attorney General Barr is doing in general to look into this stuff. I'm sure we'll find out more. But the news I'm focused on is this larger question of peace and war and the use of American power abroad. So let's just focus in, and we'll do this after the break, on Iran, or Iran, as one of my friends suggested I should say it. That we will get to after the break, but the show tonight is brought to you in part by Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group. Great guy, had him in studio last Friday. He's been helping support this show and helping people find, well, some peace of mind in the real estate market for a little while now. He changed his own life by investing in real estate. And he realized, why not bring this expertise to bear for other people here in the River Region? So if you're looking to buy a home or sell a home, Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group is the guy to call. Give him a call at 322-0662. Again, that number directly to Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group, 322-0662. I mean it. If you are a first-time home buyer, potential first-time home buyer, he can walk you through the process. A lot of the things you wouldn't think of, but because he walks you through the process, gives you some basic knowledge of the situation and what to expect, it makes what is a big decision a lot less uh, anxiety-riddled. You can make it with clear eyes, a big decision at least with clear eyes. Or if you're looking to sell that place, I know we have a lot of migrant military families here in the River Region, or maybe. We have some millennials growing up. You're having kids. You need to find a bigger place. Eddie Bader can help you out with that. And because he's helping buyers and sellers, he helps the two meet all the time. So, again, if you're looking to buy a home or sell a home here in the River Region, give Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group a call. His number is 322-0662. Again, that number for Eddie Bader, 322-0662. Give him a call and tell him Joey sent you. On the other side of this break, I want to get into a little bit of Trump's foreign policy. What does it mean to have a realist foreign policy approach? Do Americans, whether they're, you know, average Joes like myself or people working hard who catch these things in the news a little bit, or it's the high and mighty pundits, if not members of the administration themselves, making these decisions? Are we hoping for results too quickly? Are we choosing the right means and methods? We'll get into what it means to actually have a realist approach to foreign policy. I think it's a good way to remind us some humility and to help us find a soft landing. We'll be right back after this. Joey Clark.
President Donald Trump's foreign policy has taken quite a hit over the past several weeks. And poor assessments from foreign policy analysts and journalists alike are beginning to find their way on the front pages of America's most popular newspapers, the fake news. In a span of two days, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and USA Today all ran featured stories about the Trump administration's struggle to cow three adversarial governments into submission. Iran, North Korea, and Venezuela. Not to mention China on the issue of trade. We'll get to that in a second, but uh, we'll get a call from a very loyal listener and caller. Marianne wants to chime in on this topic. Marianne, how are you this evening? Hey, Joey, and thank you for doing this. I know you have worked so hard today, and today is only Monday. Yes, well, it's a actually a pretty fun way to make a humble living. How are you tonight? Yeah, I know, but I mean, I'm enjoying your show, okay? Thank you. But I, I, I've got something I want to talk to you about because of this past hour, okay? I'm a history buff, okay? And I see that in what you say through your monologue, okay? But as I say this to you, Joey, I think there's this one big thing right now with the United States that you're missing, Mm -hmm. okay? When Barack Obama went out of office, okay, this country, and as I studied history through the years, and you and I had the same history teacher who's now retired, okay, um, because we're alumni, okay, but in high school, we studied world history, we studied American history, we studied Alabama history, mm-hmm. you know, and all that, okay? And But I expanded that outside of that class as I did research, too, okay? And one thing I kept seeing through that I noticed as I read through, the, especially the American history part, it was like this one sentence. When something happened like the Depression, the country was depressed. When something happened after World War II, the country was depressed. Sure. 1960. I was I, in the 1960s. I was here. Okay, because I'm old enough to be your mom. I'm not your mom, but I could be adopted. Okay, frat house. Okay. But as I say this to you, when Barack Obama came out of office, what even I saw. And that's what I've been wanting to talk to you about. This country was so depressed by what he did in his eight years of office. Now, when Hillary was running for office, okay, and which is what I'm seeing right now in Joe Biden so very early, is how badly she treated the press. She roped them off in New Hampshire, if I'm not mistaken, okay? She put them in the back of the plane, and made her appearance in the back of the plane behind a dark curtain at one point. There's pictures of that, okay? And it wasn't, I think everybody saw, it wasn't going to be any better. And then Donald Trump shows up. And even after everything he's done, and I saw bits and pieces of the interview because of how much the news is not telling us the truth, no matter what, news you listen to you got to really pick your little bits and parts to find out what's going on um when donald trump came into office and all the changes that he's made 
this country is happy again. I just really, Joey, I hope you see that. I'm just not sure. Well, I I think what I've been focusing on tonight, though, is a a problem that goes beyond... I I see what you mean. It goes beyond just the general feeling in the country at the moment. I'm talking about kind of the long-term obligations. And with President Trump's business knowledge, okay? Because the thing that got me about one of the first things he did, he wanted, before he ever even talked to North Korea... All he wanted to do was just go look at the border. And they wouldn't let him do that. They said no. Okay? Any business person will... And my father was like your father. My father was a businessman, even though he built laundromats and dry cleaning. Okay? He needed to go see the site before he did any business deal before or any talk went about. All he wanted to say... And they said, no, you can't go. And so, but as a result, he's still talking to North Korea. Right. Okay. So there's going to be hiccups. This is the best way to explain it. There's going to be hiccups along the way on the dealings that he does. But he's seeing more than we are. Well, I, I, absolutely. Right now, I certainly hope he is. And, and Joey, right now. I am just so thankful that he is coming and he's taken, you know, he's like, no, we, whatever you think you can do over there, we can do it here in America. We're bringing it back on home. We got people that can work here. We have knowledge here. We're not the dumb people you think we are. And, I, and what disappoints me, and I'm going to be honest with you, AOC, Alexandria Cortez, whatever, mm-hmm. okay, but that's what gets me, is her name is Alexandria. What gets me, I'm calling her John Boehner Jr. Yeah. Because she was a bartender, so was he. She might be on the Democratic side or whatever party she's in. I think uh, the inexplicably orange man, John Boehner, partook in his own product a little more than AOC. But, you know, she's younger. So yeah, but we don't vote in that district. All we can do is we can pray, please, yet. y'all vote her out. Right. Joey, I love you. I didn't mean to take this on a different direction, but as we observe what's going on right now, okay, honey, we are the biggest witnesses of history in the United States, and we need to still pay attention to it. Thank you so much for what you do to add to Blue Water Broadcasting. I really appreciate it, Marianne. Thank you. Yeah, but honey, I don't. I not only love you, I'm praying for you, okay? And your family, too, okay? All the time. Well, especially thank you for that. Okay, bye. Have a good night. Here's the thing. I think the uh, country, I said this on the whole when the abortion law was passed last week, it's amazing we're even a country. So I think there was, geographically speaking, the vast majority of the country, geographically speaking, was quite depressed with what Barack Obama did. But now that President Trump has changed the game, especially in this topic of foreign policy, which in many ways is a shot in the dark, we do the best. You do the best you can. You reach out. You try to make deals. You try to make clear red lines in the sand. People should not cross. Understand your opponents and your adversaries' red lines and their pressures and sensitivities. And again, make the best deal you can. But at the end of the day, it's a large unknown 
what will exactly occur. And you, you don't, this is Trump country, I'm not ignorant of that. But imagine, folks, though you might be happy, and yes, we're always witnessing history, you gotta believe a lot of the folks in, say, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, the swamp in D.C., and New York City aren't exactly uh, happy with the current president. That's why we get a lot of the negative press. It's a divided country, and it's been slowly divided, not by singular, singular presidents. I think we give presidents way too much credit, way too much blame for those things. I think it's been divided by just who Americans are and our different interests. It's rural versus urban. Take your pick whatever way you want to divide it. But on this larger issue, a bit of a shot in the dark on what we should do on foreign policy. I love the idea of opening up negotiations and conversation with Kim Jong-un and the North Koreans, despite my disdain for their regime and the evil they perpetrate. I'm a little skeptical of the president's realignment in the Middle East, essentially giving a big bear hug to the Saudi the Saudis, to Saudi Arabia. Not surprised with this big bear hug to Israel. I guess I'm only surprised in the sense that he actually meant what he said on the campaign trail. He moved, say, the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. He actually recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And people like Jared Kushner are working on things. But right now, with an election coming up, as I started this segment off with, the fake news, as Donald Trump would call them, places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and USA Today, They've all been running stories about the Trump administration's lack of success thus far. It's not outright failure. Their inability to cow three adversarial governments into submission. Iran, Iran, excuse me, Clay, North Korea, and Venezuela. For instance, writing for the Times on May the 12th, David Sanger and Edward Wong observed that, quote, Mr. Trump's problem with all three countries reveal a common pattern, thinking aggressive an aggressive maximalist position without a clear plan or path to carry it through, followed by a fundamental lack of consensus in the administration about whether the United States should be more interventionist or less. Former State Department negotiator James Dobbins, what a weird last name, made a similar observation in the Washington Post. He commented that, quote, the president's apparent tendency to brinksmanship brings with it a degree of danger, and it's even more dangerous when it's combined with a pattern of bluffing. And USA Today summarized Trump's foreign policy as approaching an inflection point, quote, hitting the diplomatic rocks with potentially disastrous results. You can read the subtext and all this crap lately, folks. They're very worried about the president going to war. I'm also worried about this president, any president going to war, because war is back to my main point tonight. We have to be careful about our means and methods when we're looking for our just ends. But in short, all three reports pin the blame for lack of tangible success in Iran, North Korea, and Venezuela on President Trump's negotiating acumen and the tendency of his national security staff to often stray away from their boss's worldview. But this interpretation doesn't provide us much context, doesn't really tell us the full story of why, say, Kim Jong-un's nuclear weapons program is still alive and well, or why the Islamic Republic is still bankrolling proxy forces across the Middle East, or why Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro is still op- occupying the presidency in that country. 
It's not as if Trump's a blameless victim here. He is president. It is his responsibility. The Trump administration's policies with respect to all three of these countries are guided by what some might say highly unrealistic objectives. America uses many sticks to force a change of behavior, but unfortunately we don't have very we have very little carrots as an incentive to inspire an evolution. Moreover, while all three of these adversaries, Iran, North Korea, and Venezuela, are completely different countries, the White House is using the same maximum pressure approach with all three. Put it simply, this administration thinks the United States needs to turn up the heat. And maybe we do. And that means leveraging the U.S. financial system to its maximum impact and scaring foreign businesses away from Iranian Venezuelan and North Korean markets. Additionally, Washington believes it can wait patiently until their economies collapse and their governments are forced, in the case of Iran and North Korea, to enter negotiations. Or in the case of Venezuela, throw their president to the wolves. If each of these regimes continues to be stubborn, then the administration's collective mind the financial squeeze just needs to be a little tighter until the inevitable happens, whether it's negotiation or collapse in the case of Venezuela. Yet here's the irony, folks. It turns out that bullying a weaker country, again, we're the most powerful empire in human history, the United States is, using we loosely there, because I didn't build it. I'm just living in it. But bullying a weaker country into doing what the stronger country wants is a lot harder than it looks. This is not a problem exclusive to the Trump administration or Donald Trump himself. It's one reflective of the foreign policy establishment in Washington that continues to mistakenly operate as if it contain, can attain excuse me, whatever it, its heart desires. Officials, lawmakers, and national security denizens in Washington like to think that as the world's only true superpower, I like to call the most powerful empire in human history, the United States has the unique ability to get any adversary to capitulate by turning up the heat on another country's leadership, bankrupting its economy, destroying its export markets, and saber-rattling with threats of military force. The problem with this mindset, however is that the adversary gets a vote in international politics. Also, there are pesky other third-party players like Russia and China that are playing their cards fairly well, though maybe not as well as they think. Also, it just so happens that most regimes around the world, well, they prefer to keep themselves in business and power rather than folding up shop and going home. Well, the number one reason for that is because those people's, people that fold up shop and go home kind of end up dead. When existential issues are at stake, the United States should not expect a targeted country, even one as fiscally distressed as say Iran, to submit when the cost of compliance are often higher than the benefits Washington is able to offer. Iran is a perfect illustration. The Trump administration's sanctions policy on Tehran is purportedly designed to coerce the Iranian regime into re-entering a dialogue and agreement with the United States to become what Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, has termed a normal nation. Normality, according to Pompeo's list of 12 demands, includes Iran terminating uranium enrichment, stopping ballistic missile development, 
pulling all military and financial resources from Syria, severing its proxy relationships throughout the region, staying out of Iraq's politics, and releasing all American detainees into custody. Out of its custody, excuse me. From the standpoint of the United States, this is a reasonable enough ask. Who would, after all, wouldn't want an Iran that no longer supports terrorism? Of course, everybody wants that. Indeed, from Washington's vantage point, it would be the definition of crazy for Tehran not to take the opportunity to sign such a deal, when an end to the sanctions regime would be part of that trade. What Washington labels crazy, though, and what most Americans label as crazy, though, Iran considers essential to accumulating leverage over its enemies and integral to its national security strategy in the highly combustible, hyper-competitive region that we call the Middle East. It's mostly a world populated by Iran's rivals. In fact, doing precisely what the Trump administration expects would very likely be the beginning of the end of the Islamic Republic as an idea. It would be similar in many ways to the U.S. pulling back. One country's normality is another country's kryptonite, to put it mildly. And the same can be said of North Korea. This one should make sense to a lot of people. For instance, Muammar Gaddafi gave up his nuclear weapons after 9-11. When Bush said, you're either with us or against us, Gaddafi said, I'm with you. Don't do anything. I'm with you, bro. I'm, I'm with you, bro. And what happens a few years later? Because Libya doesn't even have the threat of nuclear weapons. They're easily dealt with. If by easy you mean the dictator ends up dead... So if you're Kim Jong-un looking at this, and the United States is saying, hey, could you take your nuclear stockpile, your ballistic missiles, your chemical and biological weapons, and give it to us as Americans that we can just get rid of this for good? They are very much at risk from their perspective. There's no incentive Washington could possibly put on the table that would come close to the regime security that nuclear weapons provide. That's the great irony in nuclear nonproliferation. We must stop other countries from having these weapons of mass destruction. But as soon as you get those weapons of mass destruction and you show you know how to use them, you get a seat at the big boys table. Along with nations like China, Russia, the United States, Pakistan, and... India, to name a few. It's no doubt that this is the sell, this is the ass Donald Trump is making towards Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un would love the perks of a healthier economy. He can look south across the DMZ and see all the prosperity in South Korea. But he'll probably steer clear of satisfying that craving if it requires him to eliminate nuclear weapons that makes the United States or any other country think twice before launching any sort of military operation. It's simply not worth the price right now. If one takes issue with Trump's negotiating style, fine. His hiring choice is fine. His past decisions, fine. You can even be a little critical of the direction his foreign policy is taking. But we should not allow the obsession with Donald Trump 
This is the problem in general, whether you're for him or against him. Our obsession with whomever is sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office to obscure the larger point. Just because a government is weak in relation to the mighty U.S. government doesn't mean it will fold easily. We need to understand these different countries' interests and red lines. And yes, I have to say, I'll be honest, John Bolton, not necessarily the president himself, but John Bolton makes me nervous. He famously wrote in 2015 to stop Iran from getting the bomb, bomb Iran. It is a careful balance, but we're doing the best we can. We're trying to figure out, and I hope, I wish the president best on negotiating with Kim Jong-un. I hope the president crafts a great deal with China. But we should not fall into this, I think, delusion that we're always on the side of the angels. Maybe we're more trying to strive for what is best. But if we start going and destroying and toppling more nations, not only will it create more problems for us probably in the long run, as we're still dealing with the fallout from Iraq in all sorts of different ways, we saw the effects of the Arab Spring. We didn't go in with the conventional forces like W, but Obama did all sorts of covert actions and backing of certain entities. That didn't exactly end up very well and led to this prolonged civil war in Syria. I mean, my biggest inkling, my biggest craving, I'm not saying this is right, it's where my instincts lie, is just get the hell out, protect the United States. Stop playing the game of global cop. There are some days where I think the president agrees with me, but then there are other days where I realize sitting in that presidential chair does change you. When you're looking at all the reports, getting all the advice from the different advisors you put around you, you might betray your better angels. But not only will war probably create more complications for the United States in the long run, probably a rise in more terrorism because terrorists thrive in war-torn countries. Shouldn't need much explanation for why that is. But what will our standing be? And I'm not coming at this from a politically correct angle. I'm coming at this from a point of view of what will our standing be if we topple another country? And maybe our might will be so powerful, maybe we'll be so strong, nobody will want to mess with us. But again, when you fight monsters, be careful not to become a monster yourself. This isn't just aimed at the president. It's aimed at every single person that is thinking about these issues. Do you really think the ends justify your means? There's a lot of brinksmanship going on, a lot of threats and saber-rattling. And it's time that we step back and realize that the tyrant in you is the tyrant in me. And it's very difficult to find where liberty resides. But that conversation will be for many days to come. Well, it's a conversation that never ends. 
Well, that's it for me tonight. I'll be back tomorrow. Until then. Ta-ta. Ta-ta.